This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Hi, you're listening to the Media Week Podcast. My name's Dan Barrett, Deputy Editor at Media Week. Now, I'm sitting here in the hotel lobby of Ridges at the International Airport here in Sydney. Uh, it's a very... Um, very sterile hotel <laughs> lobby from what I've seen so far. And I'm here with Amanda Lotz, of whom is a television scholar, but I'd say TV academic. Yes. Yeah. And uh, now you're with University of Michigan? Correct. Yeah. Now, what's your job title there? Professor. Um, yeah. I'm in the Department of Communication Studies, and I also have a, an appointment in the Department of Screen Arts and Cultures. Yeah. And now you also do a TV-based podcast as well? I do. Well, Media Business Matters. Yes. Uh, we try to get beyond television, yeah. although I tend to always go back there. that way. Yes. Uh, I noticed the previous, ep- like the most current one is TV-based, but you're looking at theater and the economics of theater. We did look yeah. at the theater as a business. Uh, we've looked at journalism specifically. I think we're getting ready to do sports. How is theater as a business? Well, I learned a lot. It's actually my <laughs> uh, my co-host knows much more. Uh, and so we were talking through some of the ways in which it was similar and different. So Alex was very much explaining how it works, and I was tying it back and thinking about the ways that it's different, um, mainly the fact that you digital hasn't affected it the same way because mm. it's really all about seats in the theater every day. Um, although it has similarities in other ways, the reliance on intellectual property-based entities, <laughs> yeah. um, certainly talking about some of the uh, the high prices for tickets these days. Uh, Hamilton is all the rage in the States mm. right now, so uh, and a little extra attention to theater. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that attracts me to Hamilton when I was looking at the uh, down-to-earth like, analog version of what they're really doing with it. So it's a standard theater performance, but there's a daily thing where if you haven't been able to get tickets for it, there's a bit of a lottery outside. So you don't sign up on a website, you don't get in a queue that way. You physically have to be there at the theater and then possibly win some tickets at the door. Yes, yeah. I think you must feel very good if that happens for you. <laughs> Um, is theater healthy as a business, or is it these big sort of marquee shows and everything else is fighting for scrubs? Uh, according to Alex, it is actually quite healthy, yeah. um, and, and Hamilton's helping. Uh, but no, uh, there are a number of musicals moving through right now that have been very successful. They're getting ready to launch Frozen, which is expected to uh, <laughs> mm. do quite well. Um, I think the, the big challenge, from what I was understanding, is that, they're, again, you're so tied to these physical spaces and the difficulty... Uh, of taking any of those physical spaces offline to do any kind of development and things like that. But uh, a number of the theaters are to the point where they're having to, to stop shows so that they can expand stages and things like that and do renovations. So that might be one of the bigger challenges. Yeah. Now, watch my clever segue here as I bring it back to TV. I'd be glad to go there. What I find fascinating is you were talking about Frozen as an established IP. Now, we've obviously seen through TV, our film particularly in the last few years, but TV, especially over this last year, a very heavy reliance on IP properties. Uh, so, I mean, films has been the big trend over this last six months where all these established IP, so uh, big comedies like uh, Neighbours 2, or we call it here in Australia Bad Neighbours, because <laughs> we've got a TV show called Neighbours right. and they don't want to dilute that. Uh, Bad Neighbours 2, uh, what else was there recently? Uh, Batman vs Superman underperformed. Pretty much every major bit of IP has collapsed badly this year. Right, and I think it's, it's hard to know mm. whether that's about the relying on old IP issue or whether it's flat-out execution. Um, why do why is there so much reliance on IP? It's because marketing is so difficult and it's mm. a way to guarantee that you break through and, and people at least know what it is. Um, but then if you don't do it well, it you know, it doesn't do anything for you. Although, you know, there was that small film called Star Wars that you know, did okay, <laughs> okay last yeah. year. Yeah. 
Yeah. And Finding Dory is, is doing pretty well right now, too. Of course. But you look at TV where they've really started embracing the same sort of mode, where last year we saw a few of them, and I don't think a single one of the established IP films TV translations has carried through. Uncle Buck was the most recent one. That got cancelled a couple of days ago. Right. And from what I understand, I, I never caught it, but it, it was doing better than expected. Yeah, that's what and I'm it, saying. I think in looking at that reliance on IP in the U.S. market, um, what might not be clear from not in the U.S., mm. uh, is that it's mostly broadcast networks that are relying on IP, yeah. um, and cable development uh, still is in good shape. I mean, granted, we could look at something like Game of Thrones, which is on cable, and say, you know, that came from a book, and Fargo certainly was uh, mm. also established IP. Uh, but the trend, especially with the superhero shows, has been mostly something that broadcast networks are doing, and, and there, I, I think we do have to look at at whether the execution is all that that good. And so I think we can't write off reliance on, on existing IP, but it does need to be developed well, and especially with it's moving from a, it's adapting from a different uh, source form, uh, and and recognize that it's it's not a silver bullet. Yeah, I think about a platform like Netflix, where they've been, I think, maybe more successful critically with some of their established IP carrying over. So we've seen those Marvel superhero shows they're doing, but then I picked up some previously cancelled programs. So Long My, which was an established mm-hmm. bit of property, uh, Arrested Development, which obviously mm-hmm. was very successful until it reached Netflix, where critically it was not so well received. It was it was a different show for sure mm-hmm. um, when it came back. As yeah. um, I think it it was ambitious in terms of trying to play with the possibility of nonlinear and create that opportunity to watch. The things out of order mm. um, but it, it turns out that maybe there's uh, the, the nature of comedy and of Arrested Development particularly um, was a show that regularly returned jokes and so if people aren't watching in the right order you can't do that and yeah. so that, that was an issue yeah it's hard to return something of which hasn't happened yet. exactly yeah uh, yeah, so you look at Netflix, and so they seem successful, but do we know they're successful? <laughs> well, that's, that's the, the other thing. side of it, right? Yeah. Netflix says they're very successful. Uh, and, and to that point, I think it's important to recognize that an entity like Netflix has very different metrics of success than what we're used to. And uh, within the U.S., there's a lot of effort right now to try to try to compare and try to force the standards that have been used for broadcasting cable onto Netflix, and it, it really just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the latest study I saw was an effort to try and it was external from Netflix and it was reporting and this is how many people watched in the first 28 days that's just not a metric that's important to what Netflix is doing which is building a library Uh, so I I think Netflix knows uh, how things are working out for them and it's really frustrating to be on the outside and at this point I think we can only kind of guess based on what shows are renewed, um, what kind of additional development they do like previous development. Um, so so we don't know uh, how successful Netflix is, and we, more importantly, we don't know how Netflix is judging success. Yeah, because I mean, metrics for success are quite different to a broadcaster or even a cable network, where broadcasts, obviously, they're trying to move ad sales, like that's really the main driver, as well as, I guess, international sales if they can own the property. But then you look at something which, I mean, it's kind of similar to cable where it's about sort of maintaining subscriptions. But I mean, for something like HBO against Netflix, HBO is very much about the awareness game and making sure that people feel that they've got a sense of value out of their service. Right. Whereas I think Netflix is able to compete with the fact they are a, um, 
a cord cut is the light where you're not necessarily having to subscribe on an ongoing basis. There isn't a feeling that you have to make a phone call to sign up to something or cancel it. It really is a freewheeling. Right, and and now HBO has that same kind of um, what it's called over the top, but internet yeah. delivered property. Uh, Netflix price with, point with HBO now and then right. HBO Go being the connected yeah, to the linear subscription, yeah. right? And I think each, uh, the advantage of Netflix is its price point, uh, which is going up in the U.S. right now, but still to ten dollars a month, which relative to the other video options is, is pretty is okay. very affordable. Which doesn't say that fans aren't outraged right now. <laughs> a lot of, of course not. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I think, like anything else, it depends on sort of who you are as to what value you take from a Netflix subscription. Mm. And so I think a handful of shows may be plenty to maintain an audience. Um, and one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot is the kids programming, which for uh, people with children, you know, $10 a month to be able to turn something without commercials on, on any of my devices, that alone um, is very much worth it. And so I think in many ways, we're going to continue to see a horse race between HBO and Netflix as, as subs- purely subscriber funded services, as both try to well, in HBO's case, refine what they've been doing for a long time, but figure out how much content you need for different audiences to maintain the size of the subscription base that they've figured out that they need to maintain. Yeah. An organization like HBO, how price sensitive do you think the service really is? So you hear a lot of outrage from people online saying that, you know, they're aghast that they have to pay an extra dollar fifty really to access the <laughs> service. But is that really translating into people no longer subscribing? We'll see. I think that's. I think the biggest issue is that it's one of those moments in which you actually stop and think about your Netflix subscription. I mean, yeah. it, the genius, in many ways, of the business model is you know you sign up and it then just hits your credit card every month and you don't think about it. Uh, I think as in in the U.S. market, we're starting to have more and more of these services, and I think key to sustaining a multiplicity of them. I mean, at this point, they're all pretty reasonably priced uh, for what they're offering, mm. uh, but it's certainly not the case that an individual can subscribe to all of them. And, and I think the, the piece that I'm curious about is that ease of add and drop. And to cancel old HBO um, you know, from your cable provider, that's you're guaranteed that you're going to be on the phone for at least an hour, and I'd say there's probably a better than half chance that they're going to mess it up. Then your next bill is going to be a mess, and then you're on the phone again for another two hours. Um, I had subscribed to one of the smaller services. It's called Acorn, and it's mostly British mysteries and British yes. shows. Uh, and it was surprisingly easy to cancel. Uh, you know, a click, 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 and I'm done. Um, and so I think if that's the case for Netflix, HBO Now, and the others, and I think perhaps what will happen is that people aren't subscribed constantly for different things. I could completely imagine, um, you know, oh, it's winter, and, and winter is when we're going to subscribe to Netflix, and we're going to catch up on everything, and then we're going to look at this other service. And so all of that is part of audiences moving away from those embedded behaviors and that expectation of watching when it's on and watching only one you know episode a week and, and being sort of tied to that schedule. And so we're at the beginning of that reprogramming of the audience and, and that will allow, I think, uh, movement across these services. Yeah. Australia's in a quite a different position to the US where we haven't had established cable really in the same way. Right. It isn't really firmly entrenched. Penetration's at about 35% in Australia. 
and we don't have that tradition of actually paying for TV. So we're getting all these digital services like the over-the-top services that are launching, but at the same time, we are also... We expect TV to be free to an extent, and there's a very strong history of piracy since digital yes. uh, consumption has really started kicking off. So you've got people who don't want to pay for TV, but you've got these cheaper services, which are starting to win people over. Mm -hmm. But the general mindset seems to be that you might subscribe to Netflix, and then on top of that, you might subscribe to one of the other ones in addition to Netflix. Mm -hmm. So that's very much the base. Right. And then you might get Stan or Presto being the other two big guys here. Is that the same sort of thinking that you tend to hear in the US where people think, oh, I'll subscribe to maybe two of these? Or what's generally the cord cutter approach to it? Well, in many ways, and so you're right on in terms of the US is an uncommonly cabled country mm. uh, in terms of 85-90% uh, of the population has either cable or satellite service and has had that for a couple decades and so very accustomed to paying really rather high monthly bills. And, and also our free-to-air broadcasters are rolled into those packages. So I think for many people, cutting the cord means cutting off all of those. Yeah, because um, even if you're a cable cutter, like essentially if you get your Apple TV and try watching any of the established, even free-to-air services, you need TV everywhere, which is like a cable-based pass to be able to access the free-to-air. Well, yes, and the only way to get that is the full cable subscription. Mm -hmm. um, you'd, you'd be able to get the over-the-air broadcasters if you were close enough and had an antenna. Um, yeah. And so the end of the, or the result, um, somewhat well, maybe not unexpectedly, uh, <laughs> yeah. there's been a lot of attention to this notion of cord cutting, but it really hasn't been all that pronounced. Mm. Um, what we've seen more is some cord shaving, um, which is people moving down in package. And I think what gives me the most hope and what I'm seeing play out is that you, individual households had very little option. Um, so cable providers are a monopoly in a given city. Uh, you might have a, you would have a satellite option if you have a good uh, line of sight to the south. Uh, and so those are like two options. Uh, and in some cities then the telcos have come in, uh, the companies that were traditionally telephone companies. So you might have three. Uh, but then they'd offer, you know, tiny package, which is just basically your broadcast networks, um, pretty big package and also a pretty expensive package or very expensive package. And the result of the new services coming to market like Netflix, as well as some companies that are bringing IP delivered bundles, as odd as it sounds. Um, so broadcasting linear channels, so things like Sling TV and PlayStation. Um, so, View, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, Sony's View, uh, Sling is the other company that's offering that. Mm. Um, in I've looked closely at all of them. They're certainly not replacements. Um, Sling doesn't really have a VOD capability. Um, View has only been available in many markets fairly recently. And honestly, when you break out its price point, it's not that different. Uh, so, But the effect has been that a lot of the traditional cable carriers have started to offer a few more options. Uh, one of the biggest things that I think has led to HBO now uh, was that in many places, in order to even get an HBO subscription, you had to subscribe to cable, and you also had to subscribe to the digital package. And so you'd be spending $60, $75 a month before you could even subscribe to HBO. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the fact that now I think Comcast is playing with the service in different places where it's broadcast networks and um, HBO for maybe $25, $30. The other really important thing to recognize about the U.S. market and understanding the dynamics of cord cutting is that overwhelmingly 
the cable providers are also the internet providers. Yeah. And so basically what happens, is, let's say you cut your cord, well, you're probably going to now be increasing your internet use. And so at the end of the day, cost-wise, they're mon given their monopoly status, they will say, well, if you're not going to get all your services from the from us, then your internet service goes up to here. And if you're going to start using that much more bandwidth, then you're, oh, you're back, your price is right back up to where it was with the cable. And, you know, most subscribers at that point just submit. <laughs> uh, so it, it's, it's it, I think that's partly why you know, we're not seeing revolutionary change. Uh, the numbers that I've seen running around uh, the states is that that half of the country now is subscribing to some kind of service, whether it's Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, or a combination of them, which sounds about right to me. Yeah. Um, and and so I, I, I expect as more services launch, people will fine tune their subscriptions as they can. Yeah. Oh, with Amazon Prime, and that's kind of a particular interest here in Australia because there's rumours at the moment that they're looking at launching here sometime okay. soonish. So we're looking to see exactly how that works, and it's slightly different in Australia, where in the US, obviously, it's played as a, a value play for the distribution centres. So they've got their annual subscription, although now they've got a monthly version, yeah, uh, which lets you get access to some TV and music on top of it, which right. is Amazon Prime. In Australia, we don't have distribution centers or anything like that. So okay. that extra it's sort of incentive, shipping, right? it's really about the content right. then. So yeah, that, that's going to be a bit interesting. Mm -hmm. But in the US where you are tied to this idea of a monthly or yearly subscription to get your things shipped quicker and cheaper, mm -hmm. okay, with a bit of a content play on top, is that something which people are actually embracing? Like, are people excited about the content? Or is it just a bit of an add-on that's a later consideration? I, I, I think it's... It, Transparent has gathered a lot of attention, but from, again, this is a service that we don't have any numbers on. Mm. Uh, and and my, from, from the different efforts that different technology companies have moved, made to try to go around and figure out how many people are watching, uh, they, they, not that many is the yeah. answer at Amazon, even fewer than Netflix by a substantial you, you number. You don't hear anyone really talking about it? No. Uh, certainly Transparent drew a lot of attention, um, but... It, if, if that service disappeared, I don't think many would miss it, mm. um, except for the fact that I think the industry might miss it more than anything in terms of the way in which it's developed as a, a new entity that's been willing to put up some big money uh, for original production. I think that would be missed. But uh, in terms of audiences feeling like it's a, a huge value... Um, Probably not. Yeah, its launch here in Australia is going to be very interesting because it really is coming to a market which is hungering for more options. And so I think the smaller streaming services, Stan and Presto, will have the additional competition they don't really necessarily need at this point. Well, again, and to the in the same way that Netflix is offers different content in different markets based on what it has the rights to, mm. uh, I would expect that Amazon will likely have the same challenges and. Uh, so that will be a question as well, whether or not they, I mean, their offerings in Australia could be even greater than they are in the U.S., depending on what they buy rights to. And so that, too, uh, will be an issue because there's not that, really, that much original programming at this point. Yeah. Although, to point, Amazon as well has some really good kids programming, again, um, without ads in it, which might not be uh, with your public broadcasters, you may have more children's programming without we, advertisements. We have more options, but it's still an issue. Right. Uh, yeah. but in the U.S., uh, most anything outside of those services is kind of jam-packed with ads. Yeah. 
Uh, now this kind of brings us to the idea of being uh, like large volumes of TV being available. Uh, there's a big issue in the US where they keep talking about it being peak TV. Yeah. So we're looking at in like the last 12 months there's what, like 460 original programs? Yes, there is more yeah. original television being produced than there has been uh, previously. And that figure's not just scripted, it's also... Um, or is that just a scripted figure? I think that the, may just be scripted. Yeah. Uh, the this from John Langrath, yeah, yeah. the head of FX in the US. Yes. So, so part of that can somewhat be understood as... Uh, because it's counting number of series, it's not counting number of original hours. Mm. Um, so we've gone from broadcasters... Broadcasters still mainly program 22 new episodes a year. A new... A season at a cable channel is typically 13 sometimes 10 now uh, so it, it, it's not um, necessarily the uh, number of hours of new television a year as, as one might think but it is still it is a, a huge increase so there yeah. is there there are certainly a number of new hours of television being made so considering that then of new hours versus actual original programs it sounds to me like the only problem is getting attention for your new program or returning show as opposed to there being such a glut of TV options. It's a tremendous problem mm. and and so if you part of the talk that I was giving at the Newcastle uh, was was talking through... Oh, sorry, we should actually say why you're in Australia because <laughs> I don't think I did that. Yeah. Uh, you are in Australia as a guest of the Australian New Zealand Communication Association Conference. Yes, yes. Yeah, they held in Newcastle over the last week. Right, uh, and the, the talk that I gave there is derived from some new work that attempted to figure out where original cable series came from. Like, why hadn't they been produced earlier? And so mm. it's a chronological look from... And it starts around 1997. Uh, and... It was, I won't give the full version here, but really it was an effort to create programming that was distinctive. That was the initial, um, th that was what was different about cable programs uh, early on. And, and really what had happened even before we get to the era in which Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu are producing originals themselves is that there had come to be such an abundance of distinction that it, it wasn't proving to be a good strategy anymore or an effective strategy because there were so much. There are so many shows trying to do that same thing. Uh, and then you add on the original programming produced for the Internet distributors, and, and it really is a, a cluttered environment. And, and so you, there are different things. We have different tools now. Uh, you can watch much more on demand and, and not watch even... You know, people start watching shows that are three years old because they can and they can catch up and there are now technologies that make that very easy uh, whereas it used to be that you had to just join where the show was in progress um, but the I think the, the thing that we're not yet clear on and, and the why peak TV may be a problem um, is whether or not these shows actually have the ability to earn revenue over time in the way that they're being projected to or expected to because they are competing not just against what's out this year but increasingly all the television that's been produced over the last few years. Yeah, and the thing that you're probably not talking about there but there's a spine to that is that in the past there's been other revenue models like syndication and other places a show can live on outside of being part of just one specific library for eternity. Right, and yeah. and I think in in the U.S. market that syndicate, syndication is typically the word when something is resold to broadcast networks um, and then cable has been another really important market for, for series. Yeah. So traditionally, it was always about 100 episodes, and then it became syndicated. Right, yeah. when, when you could do that sale. 
Uh, and I think one of the things that as people change their behavior and choose to watch what they want when they want from some of these library services, um, the degree to which you know most cable channels in the U.S., um, you know, two-thirds to three-quarters of their day is made up of old programming. Mm-hmm. And so whether it's already the case that the the high prices that used to be paid for pre, you know, really good quality series uh, aren't being paid anymore, and I think that will only continue to go down. And and those revenues are are key for the shows to just earn back their cost. Um, that first airing does not, uh, they don't earn their cost uh, in that original license deal. Yeah. So do you think there's the situation arising now where looking for those additional revenue models, TV's going to start emulating film, which has become really reliant on overseas international sales more than what's happening domestically? I think the overseas has been very important for particular kinds of content. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so that certainly is built in from the start and, and part of a consideration about whether or not a show goes forward. Uh, but also I suspect that the... In, not just anything can be offloaded and sell well internationally. And, and I think the other thing is that the international market will face those same challenges. It's not that people around the world have more hours in their day to watch television. I know in Australia all the time in the world we're fine. So it, 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 it remains to be seen, I think, um, how this will all play out. It's probably not going to be a crisis in the next three years, but yeah. um, coming on down the pike. Yeah, now there are some international shows which don't sell well, and I'm going to throw an example that I heard in your most recent podcast here, which was uh, looks something like Empire, which is very heavily rooted thematically in African-American culture in the US, and you don't really have that overseas, and there aren't as many points of contact to that. So, I mean, while you kind of understand it, I don't think it resonates as well overseas. Uh, so I've only seen uh, some initial reports suggesting that it that it isn't selling as well as uh, it, it was this an unbelievable juggernaut last year in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the first show in in decades, if ever, that grew its audience week to week, um, and and it was it's a heavily serialized show um, that also burns through narrative at an, an impressive clip, um, and so I, I, it, it didn't. Its second season in the U.S. did not match uh, its first in terms of, of the attention that it received. Uh, and so in my suspicion about an, an empire perhaps burning too brightly too fast yeah. wasn't actually even taking into uh, account its the African-American characters and um, themes. But that's pop culture, you know, so I don't know that um, we can expect that that would be a reason why it wouldn't sell internationally. Um, but I think the, the, the difficulty of serialization, uh, and it's so being so heavily serialized, it would be great for a service like Netflix, but it would really be a questionable buy, I'd say, for uh, a television network that couldn't expect an audience to show up regularly for it. And then just the problem of maintaining the pace that it had established early on. Yeah. I guess maybe one of the things that sort of got me thinking about the idea of African-American culture not connecting is I've been looking at the recent launch of Viacom in Australia and globally Mm -hmm. of BET, 
called okay. BET. Uh, it's BET. Yeah. I can never get my mind around it. <laughs> it's one of these things I've read for years, but right. I've never said out loud. Uh, so BET, they've never really been able to sell it sort of in the same way as you can a lot of other cable stations. And I'm wondering if it is because it is so culturally specific. But they've now got an over-the-top service, which is mostly iPad and iPhone dependent, but okay. I'm sure it'll be on other platforms mm-hmm. uh, in the not-too-distant future. And it seems like they're actually able to push out that content on a global scale and actually scale it at the point mm-hmm. they need to be able to do a decent profit on it. Whereas I don't think that would necessarily sell as well in each market sort of on its own road. Uh, I have a colleague named Tim Havens who would be so much better to talk to this point. He has a book called Black Television Travels that looks exactly at this. That's um, fascinating, yeah. And has identified sort of the... Because different shows have traveled quite well. The Cosby Show performed very well mm. around the globe. Uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I believe, as well. Um, and so understanding what types of blackness um, do translate. And, and, and it may be the case that Viacom... In, which is a, a huge company in terms of what it may be drawing from and programming uh, on that channel and its international scope, um, that they, uh, I'm not sure what, what version of U.S. blackness that they're yeah. offering up. <laughs> Um, I guess I'm just thinking about some other sort of African-American content right now. So uh, the two big ones that sort of come to mind for me, Blackish, which I've noticed a few people, it's getting a bit of a groundswell here at the moment okay. where people are starting to find it, but most of that's through Torrance. And I think it may air here on cable, but it's not a, sort of a widely sort of watched show. Uh, but also the Carmichael Show, which mm-hmm. I think is a fantastic program, but it's never going to get a broadcast here. It's just, I think, maybe too niche. And well, I, I think it, it's struggling that way in the U.S. Yeah. as well, or... Um, or it could be argued NBC's not putting enough behind it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think both might be fair. Right, right exactly. Yeah. Um, so, again, it's this environment of um, there's just so much television um, mm-hmm. and, and breaking through that. And, and I think it takes a lot for shows to um, get the kind of buzz to, for audiences to find them. And then I think in both of those cases, too, uh, although Blackish is more of a conventional um, U.S. broadcast sitcom, There is a way in which um, an audience that, you know, wants... It's a hard conversation to white people sitting here discussing this. Yes, exactly. But it's also the case that, you know, I'd say there's an enormous white audience for those shows, um, but much of the audience that wants television that's going to challenge them a little bit in the Mm. U.S. isn't watching broadcast anymore. No. And so so that, I think, is also an issue. and, and so finding the audience in terms of taste cultures is, is as difficult as, and significant as in terms of demographic features. Yeah. I'm thinking about TV shows and the international distribution of them in terms of scale at the moment, in terms of... Uh, okay, so I've got two lines of thought here. Uh, one, we're obviously going to start seeing a contraction in that. That 460 different programs probably isn't necessarily going to be something which can continue on in the long term. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're probably going to see some sort of level of contraction in that. But at the same time, we're also seeing a lot of US networks and their parent companies looking for this global play now. So it's going to be really green lighting a lot of shows that they can sort of scale globally, I think, mm-hmm. and start to really push things that way. So when we are looking at things as global networks rather than as um, international sales just from the US and mm-hmm. sort of, you might see a bit of stuff from overseas flying back to the US, but mm-hmm. largely it's a lot of pushing out on a right. global sort of level. Um, what do you think that's doing to TV? Like, is, uh, is that viable as well? Well, I think, and that's what's interesting and in coming out of the, uh, the conference and seeing some of the papers there, you know, that there, there are these, there are certain taste cultures that are global. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the technology and distribution services now perhaps make it 
easier than it has been in the past for uh, content that targets that certain kinds of taste cultures to travel. In the U.S., historically, it's been very difficult to see things from anywhere else um, because there hasn't been uh, a mass audience for it. Uh, but increasingly, it is now possible, um, yeah. especially for most. For the most part, I think it is on the um, internet distributed services. Um, but so whether it's the the kind of Scandi- what gets called Scandi noir mm. um, coming out of, of Denmark, particularly um, that that those shows travel particularly well. Um, I saw a presentation about the Kettering incident and yep. talking about its continuity with those themes and um, watching that. And uh, you don't like it. I, I only I, I saw clips of the trailer, so oh, I okay, haven't so seen I haven't the show. The um, and I, I, I wrote it down <laughs> to try and figure out now who in the U.S. is going to distribute it. Yeah, um, it might be a wait. It, it yeah. maybe <laughs> it's often that way. Although Hulu's been quite good at getting quite a few Australian programs of late, so oh, that might Google, be a place. That to may look. be the place to start. Yeah. So, and I think coming back to your your question about. Uh, I think Netflix is definitely trying to be a global network. Mm. Uh, And it's certainly the case that many of the other U.S. cable companies have been buying networks internationally that suggest on probably a much smaller scale a similar effort to try and, you know, build on the economies of scale of a global audience, which sounds really challenging. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, I think... Netflix strategy it will be fascinating to watch it play out over the next ten years um, because to see what they what ends up working um, whether some sort of type of show develops that is an international blockbuster a global blockbuster I mean right now I think Game of Thrones is is sort of that mm. um, or the closest closest example we have whether a show has to be sort of similar to that and its lack of place specificity and um, heavy action elements in order to be a global blockbuster and you know that remains to be seen um, and or whether you know, sort of patterns of recognizing that in the same way that I think Netflix has looked at the US market and figured out you know, there's there's this taste culture, and then there's that one, and then there's this other one, and we need to make sure that we program enough for those groups, and and really not expect them to travel between you know groups. Um, then and we can make a business out of that, and then to see whether they do, they can do something with the global market, and you know, in many ways, I think it's it's the idea. Again, we don't know, um, but the the potential power of the algorithms and the knowledge that they do have about audiences and and how they watch and who watches what that also watches this other thing and then the ability that they have to to you know they don't send out the same like you might want to watch this to everyone right it's it's a really smart algorithm um it at least seems to be and so in many ways you know those are all really game changers in terms of how it is how shows have been made, um, and, and in the past, you know, here's here everyone here's something. You know, you might like it, but yeah. everyone's getting the same <laughs> message, and the idea is that everybody's going to watch it because there's not much else out there, and so it's a really different era. Yeah, my theory of Game of Thrones, and the reason why it's worked globally, is it feels very European, 
And I think because it doesn't feel like it's an American program mm -hmm. then, it doesn't feel like it's specifically UK, but it's got the British accents, but it feels <laughs> a bit more, you know, just a mid-European sort of vibe to it. So, right, and historically, yeah. uh, if you go back to sort of the um, television, movies made for television that tended to travel well, they were mm. of a similar character. Um, uh, uh, they, I think his name is Robert Halimi, uh, who produced many of the things like Merlin, and, yep. uh, you know, the, those... Again, non-geographically specific stories, um, and, but but curiously, you know, I was looking at sort of counterexamples. You know, I haven't actually seen Netflix Marco Polo, yeah. but in many ways, it has a very similar pedigree, but didn't work no. um, at all, from what I can tell. I mean, it helps to be a good show. Well, see, that's that's yeah. that's the trick, right? And so it comes back to where we started. Marco Polo was a terrible, I should say. But, okay, yeah. um, but but that too would have potentially worked and then people mm. point to the failure of uh, Rome for HBO and the BBC um, as another show that should have you know yeah. perhaps worked better than it did for an international market so uh, I think there while there are decades of experience within particular national markets in terms of knowing what audiences like what they don't we're at but the start of trying to understand a global audience nobody knows anything well, no, but uh, and they know that, but they, they, they cling to what they can, which is sometimes IP works better than non-IP. So. <laughs> okay, we're going to start closing this up, but um, just in terms of TV at the moment, what's the sort of era of inquiry that you find a little bit exciting right now? Um, broad question, I know. Broad question. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, this question of global distribution is one that, that is really intriguing yeah. um, because I think... I've been able to wrap my head around what's happened in the U.S. market and, and as a business and, you know, have uh, maybe proven very wrong. But I, I think I see where things are going. But um, the, the question of the future of international distribution when you have a company like Netflix um, is, is, is hard to imagine. Um, and, and so I think a lot of, of past... Um, Behavior reliance, you know, the way that that content moved, and the role of uh, having you know, different buyers in different countries, um, I, and and you know whether or not it's possible to continue to rely on this process of windowing that the industries relied on, mm. and, and that you know market X gets it, then market Y, um, and once we start moving into that online distributed space, um, windowing kind of goes out the window as a strategy and so I sort of I, I expect that windowing becomes less important and exclusivity becomes more important um, but again you know the, the fact that very different services are available in different markets um, makes adds questions about the uh, viability of exclusivity yeah we're starting to see a real reduction in windowing happening here in Australia like the number of shows that we're seeing almost day and day with the US right things, yeah. and that's that's the piracy you know, mm. how do you how do you, what it, what can you do? Well, one thing is to actually let people who want to watch a show watch it. Yeah. Um, so, step one. The interesting thing is being free-to-air television being our dominant really way that people <laughs> are watching TV here. Uh, pretty much you can't really do a international program on free-to-air anymore. Anything after 8.30, which is always, right. particularly US scripts and stuff, mm -hmm. doesn't really rate. People are right. getting it from other sources now, so okay. it's kind of, yeah, it's fashed out. Hmm. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, my last thing I was going to throw at you is, what are you watching on TV? What are the <laughs> what excites you? 
Oh, um, let's see. Right now, I'm catching up on Orphan Black. Yeah. Um, I, I've been. I've I've switched to. I, I don't want. I watch things in in good chunks, like a full season chunk. Um, and I haven't even started the current season of Game of Thrones. I was waiting for it to finish. <laughs> so that's also on the list for the summer. Spoiler, um, it's pretty good. <laughs> you can't, yes, I know some people die, right? Uh, <laughs> it's trying to watch the Twitter feed without too close attention. <laughs> yeah, good luck with yeah, that. It's like not on Sunday nights. Um, so well, I, we get it on Mondays when we're trying to work. Oh, dear. I have to look at Twitter for my job. It's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah. But, um, and I think... Uh, Per um, what a lot of critics in the U.S. I think are saying right now is that there there just aren't dramas that seem as excellent as some of the ones of the last decade, uh, and, and and we these things have always been cyclical. Um, but comedy is there, we're seeing far more experimentation and variation in that space. Uh, you talked about Carmichael Show already. Uh, a lot of the things that Netflix uh, is doing, um, Aziz Asari's um, uh, show, Master, Master of None, Master of None yeah. right? Um, and so I think, it, and uh, you know, and many of the other, uh, anything from Broad City to um, Inside Amy Schumer. And Sorry, just, this is at the end of a long trip for me. Yes, so yes, I'm, yeah. I, I can see <laughs> the characters in my head. It's just I'm not making their their titles anymore. Um, so, I, I, the comedy space is exciting, um, but I have to say, I, I'm not currently in love with anything, yeah. um, which has been kind of a sad place to be for a while, but um, there's, there's far more really good TV than there ever has been, um, but I guess also these things are... Getting that next step to excellent is uh, a very uh, specific taste, let's say. So. Yeah. Since the end of Mad Men, I've had trouble finding love again in the same way. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was Sons of Anarchy. Oh, really? And nothing has You're quite one of those. That. I was one of those. <laughs> uh, it surprised me very much. But uh, melodrama and motorcycles. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been quite the revelatory conversation. <laughs> Amanda, thanks so much for your time. Uh, my pleasure. Now, if people want to find more from you, uh, first of all, you've got a number of books. Um, halfway through your current book, which I'm going to butcher the title again, but it was... The, the television will be revolutionized. And that's revolutionized with a Z? Yes. American Spelling. It's in its second edition, uh, which came out in 2014, because the first edition came out right before Netflix. And so uh, <laughs> that changed things some. Yeah, it is interesting. The first chapter in it is talking about the idea of establishing what TV is to an extent. Mm -hmm. Like, is it video or is it sort of broadcast? Mm -hmm. And that kind of feels almost like a dated conversation now. I but agree. But only by about six months. Like, it's things are moving <laughs> yeah. very quickly there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm redefining or establishing how I'm defining television, uh, yeah. which is um, pretty pretty openly. So, uh, yeah. But you do have a couple of other books, and also who can find you on Twitter? Uh, Twitter at DrTVLotz, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z, and um, most everything you might want to know about me is on my webpage at AmandaLotz.com, all one word, A-M-A-N-D-A-L-O-T-Z. Indeed. Amanda, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, it's my pleasure. Um, people can obviously check out Media Week on our website, mediaweek.com.au, and find us on Twitter and Facebook, Media Week AUS. And don't forget, if you're listening on iTunes or whatever your other standard podcast listening platform of choice might be, leave a review. helps other people find the show. Uh, thank you very much for listening. We'll talk to you later.